Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in collaboration with Friends of the Podcast, London and Capital. Over the next 15 minutes, we are going to look back on some of the key investment and market takeaways from 2020, what we've learned from them and what that should mean for captive insurance investment strategies going forward. Joining me to talk us through this are Chris Diel, Executive Director, and Mike Trudeau, Portfolio Analyst at London and Capital. So, of course, 2020 has been an incredibly, I'm not sure what the quite the right word for it, chaps, is a disruptive, unprecedented, bizarre year for, for all of our all of our social lives, professional lives. And of course, that has had a huge impact on the economy and uh, the investment markets. And, and as we know, and we've talked about a few times over the year, captives can have quite varied uh, investment strategies and investment approaches. Mike, I thought maybe a good place to start would just be to Looking back at 2020, kind of what would be your your key takeaways of, of what we've learnt, and and what should we should we be looking out for as as we move ahead into 2021? Yeah, th- thank you, Richard. Um, yeah, looking back and and also looking ahead to, to 2021, if I had to summarize, you know, two to three key important lessons for investors um, and things that you know we've learned as well at London and Capital, you know, they would be. I, I would start off with number one. Don't fight central banks, but expect them to lose relative importance. Uh, you know, in the next three to five years, this strategy, you know, has been particularly rewarding when it comes to to credit in companies with strong growth prospects and and solid balance sheets. And you know, since the the Lehman Brothers collapse in uh, in 08, much attention has has been on central banks, their actions, their emissions, their words, their silences, uh, their dot plots. And and yet again this year, we've we've seen the Federal Reserve. You know, slashing uh, interest rates to near zero percent and launching a, a massive seven hundred billion dollar stimulus program to help revive the the shock from the pandemic, um, which has had you know a direct effect on on markets as seen by the strong recovery since April. However, given where we've come now in terms of monetary stimulus going forward, you know it would appear to us that the the ability of central banks to stave off further bouts of economic weakening has been greatly reduced, at least through conventional uh, monetary tools. Um, with rates close to zero, one has to think that that actually the marginal impact of monetary stimulus will in fact be lower, and the transmission mechanism appears to, to remain broken. That said, global central bank policy at the moment remains supportive for the economy and financial markets, with low rates here to stay for the next two to three years. And and this stance was, in fact, uh, set by the recent announcement from you know, the global central bank, that is the Federal Reserve, which signaled a major shift in its approach to managing inflation as it tries to do more to aid the economy's recovery. And, and that major shift was actually the fact that they will now target an average of 2% inflation rather than making 2% a, a fixed goal, which, which really does signal to uh, investors and markets that the bank will keep uh, interest rates lower for longer to help stimulate growth and, and really to tackle historically high unemployment. Um, so, so central banks are, are fighting a tough fight uh, at the moment, uh, what we would call a quadruple fight of lower potential growth rates, lower productivity, persistent disinflationary threats, and labor market dislocation. And it will likely be years before economic slack is truly absorbed and uh, inflation sustainably achieved. The second point, uh, and, and the other thing that, that we've learned this year and, and, and builds off this first point, is that 
uh, we believe we've now entered the age of fiscal dominance, or at least the age of needed monetary and fiscal coordination. Central bank monetary policy and government fiscal policy are are really the two critical levers to managing the economic recovery. And with such a deep contraction, it is best if they are used together going forward to stimulate growth. And with central banks seemingly doing everything they can, fiscal stimulus is now the key to keep the recovery afloat by providing relief to those people and businesses that have been most affected by the virus and restoring confidence to households. If further fiscal stimulus is implemented, it will undeniably provide a boost to certainty. Uh, And without it, consumers will remain cautious. And in consumption-driven economies, such as the U.S. and other uh, Western economies, this would certainly prolong the the recovery. And and historically, deep recessions like the one we've seen this year are often accompanied by long recovery times. And so fiscal stimulus uh, will, will certainly help to shorten this timeline. And the, the third point I'd like to touch on is, is inflation. It's obviously been a hot topic with all the, um, with all the money uh, being pumped into the system uh, essentially this year. Uh, a lot of debate going back and forth. And our view is that inflation is not a problem uh, in the short term, but it is something that uh, we need to pay attention to going forward. And as we've talked about before, and you know, you know the last time I was actually on this podcast earlier this year, Disinflation is still with us, but even a modest inflation expectation shift upward would create deep reverberations across financial markets. I think importantly for markets, it'll be the cause of any inflation change that will be critical to assess the impact on markets. Um, If it were to come from stronger economic growth and reduce labor market slack, uh, then overall that would would likely be a net positive. But although we we could very well see some short-term headline inflation next year as we come from a low base, we believe core inflation is still battling disinflationary forces, as highlighted by the Fed trying unsuccessfully to, to get inflation above 2% since uh, the great financial crisis, despite strong economic growth, low unemployment, and massive stimulus in, in those, uh, those post-2008 uh, years. Um, and it's largely due to structural trends, such as aging populations, uh, globalization, technological changes, uh, e-commerce, uh, lower productivity, etc., which uh, which are still present and, and some, in fact, exacerbated by by this crisis, and perhaps most importantly, with the steady decline, uh, you know, of, of labor unions and now massive labor market slack, labor bargaining power has been eroded. So it's it's difficult to see demand pull inflation arising until labor markets truly recover from uh, from these high unemployment levels. Inflation expectations have moved higher after being crushed in March, but they're only back to uh, to pre-virus levels and certainly below the Fed's uh, 2%, uh, 2% target. So our base case is for inflation to remain subdued for some time ahead. However, given the extreme economic uncertainty and the, uh, the unprecedented monetary accommodation, we have inbuilt hedging in our asset allocation. At the moment, portfolios are positioned with this backdrop in mind and do have some natural inflation hedges like gold, like equities, and even within fixed income, what we would call spread products like hybrids and, uh, and subordinated financials. We believe that, that these areas will, will likely benefit if, in fact, inflation expert expectations were to move higher. 
Well, a lot, a lot to unpack there, Mike, and a really, really good insight into uh, kind of quite a broad overview of, of all the different elements of the economy and the markets that have been impacted by, by, by the virus and by uh, economic policy over the last uh, nine to 12 months. Chris, how do we translate this then, uh, or how do you translate this then for for investors and particularly, uh, of course, with us, with, with captive insurance companies that will be looking to be prudent in, in how they invest their, their money over the next 12 months? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a it's a good question, Richard, and and uh, one that we obviously delighted to uh, delighted to talk about. Um, looking <laughs> looking back at those those three points that Mike made about not fighting central banks and the fact that we've got low 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 rates for longer, uh, making sure that uh, that we understand that that we, we we're going to be expecting a lot more fiscal stimulus going forward than we've had in, in the in the past, and the fact that inflation is is not an imminent problem. Look at, looking how that how you apply that to captive portfolios. That means I think that holding cash is going to be completely unrewarded in the in the next couple of years. And even with low inflation expectations in the short term, you know you you run a big risk of of, of falling well behind inflation, um, given that you're going to you're going to be earning zero from from holding cash. And we know that captives are certainly typically exposed to to, to higher. Uh, rates of inflation than than you'd see in sort of the normal CPI or, or sort of cross economy measures that you that you see, um, and that's because they're tip- they're more exposed to things like medical claims inflation and uh, and, and and other specific areas um, of, of inflationary pressures. So I think that is something that the captives certainly need to be aware of. But the two main points that I'd that I'd want to sort of highlight in terms of practical implications is that captives are going to have to accept that that volatility is going to be higher in the next five years than it has been over the last ten years. When a crisis strikes, you know we we need to breathe, take a breather, take a step back, look at the bigger picture, and we need to ask ourselves these these key questions: Are my assets liquid? Are they resilient? Is the thesis that made me buy these assets in the first place still valid? So we are going to see more volatility. And by that, I mean more price volatility. Captives are, of course, required to mark uh, mark investments to market, as they say, and, and you know put the latest price against their balance sheet. And so the market volatility will, will obviously impact balance sheet values as well as P&Ls. But investors in general, and and certainly this applies to insurers and captives more widely, they need to care a lot less about mark-to-market volatility on a go-forward basis and worry more about the inherent quality and the nature of the investments they hold. Take a look at your investment portfolio. Understand what the risks are. Understand where your holdings are. If you're in a fund, what a, look through that that first layer of of, of, of the fund and, and understand what sits sits in there and, and ask again ask those questions. Are they liquid? Are they resilient? And do I have a strong thesis backing those? Obviously, the the other the other side to the volatility, the other side of the coin when you're looking at volatility is not just about how your assets are behaving, but also the impact that that has on your own behavior. So making sure that boards and management are kept up to up, up to pace on on the implications of that. So encouraging clients to avoid knee-jerk reactions when volatility arrives. And part of that, and certainly part of our role as an investment manager, is to, is to educate boards around the risks in the portfolio, what to expect going forward, so that when these crises strike, when volatility rears its ugly head, it's not a surprise. You've got a game plan and you understand the way forward. So that, that, that accepting volatility is going to be higher in the next 10 years is, is absolutely critical. The other thing is, again, you know, thinking long-term, we're playing a long-term game. 
with a long-term investment horizons for, for captives and insurers. But at the same time, we want to balance that. We want to make sure that we're not trying to force ourselves to predict too far into the future about what's going to happen. Long-term performance is absolutely available, even despite the low interest rate environment and the low yield environment to those, those investors who are committed to playing that long-term game and have that long-term investment horizon. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, both you know, in the wider economy and also in the investment markets. It really is a fool's game to try to predict how political or other sort of um, market forces are going to react. What we want to do is make sure that we are positioned uh, over the long term um, in, in those assets that are liquid, resilient, and, and have a strong thesis around them. There are a number of investors and other players in, in the investment market who are playing a different game. They're playing trading games. They've got, uh, you know, their, their hedge funds, they're looking for um, arbitrage opportunities or uh, their, yeah, their short-term investments, their day traders. You know, we, we're, not, we're not competing with those, with those guys. We, we're trying to play a different game. And so that long-term investment horizon means that we need to have a long-term focus. And as such, we need to uh, we need we need to make sure that we are not trying to win you know every month we are we are trying to win over a five year period. I think what, how that translates in the portfolio is really focus on shorter maturity bonds in sectors uh, with genuine structural strength. It's important to remember, I think, even at this stage, uh, we've had some positive news about vaccines, and that's fantastic. And it's still a, a reasonable way off in terms of how that's going to be implemented. It's a bit unclear uh, the impact that's going to have on hospitality, energy, industrials, transportation. All of these sort of equity sectors can can remain cheap um, until there is that catalyst for recovery and, and growth and also sort of um, in, increase in perhaps inflationary pressures. So COVID is going to cause deep scars on, on consumer behavior and also business investment. And so making sure that you we're, we're allocated to the right sectors is, is going to be is going to be critical. And fundamentally, um, we need to we need to recognize that there are investment opportunities for long term investors, but we need to be a bit more nuanced about where we allocate our capital. So, like, like I said, we accept that volatility is going to be higher in the next 10 years and we need to think long term. Those are, I think, the two critical lessons that captors can take and apply to their, their own portfolios. Um, looking to 2021. I think, Chris, it's really, really important point you make regarding the kind of long-term approach that captives have and how they're not in competition with those more short-term players that have very different motives and priorities in regards to investments. I just want to actually quickly ask a follow-up question, if I may, Chris, and slightly change tack a little bit, which I'm bringing it back to the insurance market. Uh, which is that we expect, and we know that assets under management of captives have been going up increasingly over the last 10, 20 years. Captives have generally got bigger over time, but we do expect with this hard market for the last two years and possibly another year of purely to really swell captive insurance companies' balance sheets even further. Chris, do you see that as in any way of a of a change in dynamic for investment strategies? Does it, does it simply mean that the numbers just get bigger or could it be that actually captors having considerable, considerable more cash to play with might actually influence how they, how they approach the markets? That's a very interesting question. I think in terms of, it certainly does make the numbers bigger. Um, I think it also means that actually boards need to be thinking about this now. 
um, they need to be thinking about how they're going to apply those um, perhaps bigger premiums that they're going to be expecting over the next few years, how they're going to uh, invest those to make sure that the claims that they're paying out in future years, that the assets are still there um, and obviously have grown in line with at least inflation. I think the other the other thing to, to, to consider is, well, actually, for, for captives who are perhaps expanding, perhaps they are not just taking bigger premiums on existing lines of business, but perhaps introducing new lines of business into their into their captive, that obviously has an impact on on changing the uh, the liability profile of the captive more generally. Obviously, it increases the level of diversification from an underwriting perspective, which is fantastic. And investing those assets rather than holding it, holding it in cash also increases the diversification profile across the entire balance sheet, not just on the liability side, but also on the asset side. But making sure that when you're investing those assets, you're investing them in a way that that suits your own liability profile is is important certainly for 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 captives and 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 insurers who are subject to for example more stringent sort of uh, capital regulatory regulatory capital regimes uh, like sovereignty 2 you get penalized and it is quite punitive if you're not doing that exercise uh, but even in the um, even in the domiciles that perhaps um, a little less stringent than, than perhaps Europe. It is just good practice to make sure that that you are um, that you're, you're thinking about your liabilities when you're also creating your investment portfolio and your investment allocation. So yeah, I think that change in business makeup, the change in uh, the volume of business you're writing, I think that that should be nudging captives to take another look at their investment portfolio and make sure it's lined up with their plans on the underwriting side. Well, thank you to Chris and Michael for another instalment of excellent insights into how the wider economy and markets impact upon captive investment strategies. For more information on London Capital and their captive services, do please visit globalcaptivepodcast.com. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. Captives.